In the media, any mention of stem cells is meant to offer a beacon of hope for our health as a species. These cells carry the burden of holding promise for everything from anti-aging, to curing neurodegenerative diseases, to treating cancer. But what is the true potential of stem cells for the more immediate future as seen by scientists today? And what fields would be closest to realizing this potential? And what are the biggest, boldest questions that are being asked? In this two-part episode, we sat down with Dr. Magdalena Goetz, Director of the Institute of Stem Cell Research at the Helmholtz Center in Munich and Chair of Physiological Genomics at the Biomedical Center of the Ludwig Maximilian University. We cover the role of the neural stem cells that reside in our own brains, the use of exogenous stem cells in transplantation therapy, and how recent advances in genetic technologies can control cell fate, allowing us to then, potentially, control our own. You're listening to Neuron Air, brought to you by the next generation of neuroscientists from Albert Einstein College of Medicine in Bronx, New York, exploring your brain's phenomena, one scientific adventure at a time. Yes, so I'm Magdalena, and since I joined science, actually, even during my master's studies already, um, I was fascinated by brain development, and ever since I work on the development of neurons, neurogenesis, and gliogenesis, and various aspects of this. So some while ago, actually published in the year 2000, this brought us to the discovery that in fact the neural stem cells are radial glia cells. And this opened up two new branches in my lab. One was direct neuronal reprogramming because we were interested to see if glial cells can naturally generate neurons. What about glial cells that don't generate neurons normally? Could we force them to generate neurons? So direct neuronal reprogramming has then become a, a, a subfield in the lab, and we are still very active in this. At the same time, of course, then we were interested in what specific glial cells actually do after brain injury, because we wanted to know which cells would be actually the best or let's say the easiest to convert or which cells we should not convert because they have essential beneficial function after injury. So. Uh, another branch in the lab um, is studying reactive gliosis after TBI in the um, cerebral cortex of mice and more recently actually also of men. And then, of course, we still love development and we still do a lot in the mechanisms of neurogenesis that also leads us to fun surprises. Yeah, let's leave it at that. But can you just give a little bit more information about what, what radial glia cells are for people who may not have heard of those before? Sure, sure. Um, so radial glia cells in a nutshell are like neuroepithelial cells. I'll explain that also in a second with glial properties and identity. So epithelial cells are cells in many developmental regions, but also in many of our organs that have a polarity that differ at one end and the other for, for the experts, the basal end at the basement lamina and the apical end where adherence junctions delineate a typical apical membrane. 
So basically, these are just polarized cells. And indeed, the brain develops from the neural tube and the neural tube from the neural plate. And in, at all these stages, neural plate, neural tube and brain vesicles, epithelial cells span the entire thickness of the wall of these vesicles then or tube. And uh, these epithelial cells are neuroepithelial cells. And at the onset of neurogenesis, they actually start to differentiate some glial properties. And this is when we call them radial glia cells. So I, a little bit to, to follow up then, it seems to be then easier, right, to reprogram glial cells into neurons because they're of the same cell type and because they're of the same germ layer? Yeah, that's a very interesting question that is actually not known. And in fact, we have some recent data that shows that indeed the germ layer origin does not ease reprogramming. So um, really? I'll, I'll come to that in a, in a second. So indeed, Glial cells and neurons are even from the same region, right? And they, of course, are very different in their function and gene expression, but they are developmentally related and, and even in the same region, typically, which is also important. And we can chat about that uh, later. Now, indeed, when, um, so as I said, we had started astrocyte to neuron reprogramming already in 2002. But when it was shown by Marius Wernig that fibroblasts can also be directly reprogrammed into neurons, that was a big splash, of course, because everybody was surprised because they come from a different germ layer, which is what you are touching on, namely the mesoderm. So converting mesoderm cells into ectoderm cells with just a few transcription factors. Now, ever since, of course, people reprogram and since the big evolution, revolution of induced pluripotent stem cells, people reprogram almost anything into anything. And the, the question, if in fact cells from the same germ layer are easier to convert into each other than from different germ layers, has never really been tackled in comparative manner, just that sometimes for some cells, you need four transcription factors to turn them into something and for others only two or one. So does that make them easy, this easier or not? So that's the level. But we have now done a single cell sequencing study following the conversion of fibroblasts into different muscle cells, neurons, endoderm cells, and actually found that indeed the, there is no bias to reprogram better into cells of the same germ layer. But this shows you uh, <laughs> that even though the reprogramming field is around and exploded in the last 20 years, there is many basic aspects that we don't know. Talk about better, or I guess when I ask about would it be better or easier, if you reprogram from a fibroblast or from a glial cell into what is theoretically the same neuron, do they have the same transcriptional profile? Like, is are the epigenetics similar enough or the other protein expressions? Like, are they quote as good? And I guess what would that, like, what would that assay be to test that? 
Yeah, exactly. So uh, indeed, they are not the same. They differ. And again, we and also others have shown that the starter cell identity matters a lot. But what we were talking before was a kind of rule, you know, always when starter cells come from mesoderm, then they are easier to reprogram in mesoderm or something, which I think is not the case. So, however, when you even reprogram different glial cells from different brain regions, for example, into neurons, you actually get different neurons. Now, this depends on the patterning on the spatial information of the starter cell in the brain, but also coming back to your example, when you reprogram a fibroblast into a neuron or an astrocyte into a neuron, again, you get different neuronal identity. Now, I would say people are just starting to understand why this is the case. And everything that you mentioned, um, plays a role there. Um, so the epigenome plays a role, of course, it's different and it regulates which genes are activated. Thomas Graf had very nice data in the reprogramming field, not into neurons, but also that the starting proteome also plays a key role. And obviously the starter cells differ in their gene expression, i.e. RNA and protein composition. And that altogether influences basically what you get out. When you talk about reprogramming cells, can you just briefly, like, like very simply describe what you mean? Yes reprogramming or, or even direct reprogramming as it's often uh, referred to means that a cell identity A is turned into cell identity B by bringing in transcription factors typically let's say fate regulators this can be done by RNA, by protein. Typically, it's done by using viral vectors that uh, lead to the gene expression of transcription factor A, B, and C that then leads to the fate conversion. So when you say the viral fa factors, do, could you do it inside the animal? Uh, like, for example, if you're doing something in the brain in that same region, can you reprogram cells that are already in that location? Absolutely. And we did that. We had the first paper about that already in 2005. Mm -hmm. These were very scrambled, young, immature neurons, and many were dying. But absolutely, you inject a viral vector that infects only glial cells. Uh, we used a viral vector that actually needs cell proliferation and after injury, the cells proliferating are glial cells. Mm -hmm. And then the viral vector integrates into the genome of these proliferating cells, expresses the gene that you put in, PAC6, it was for us in starting, now it's many proneural factors, neurogenin 2 or ASCL1, and then you give it some time, typically two weeks, four weeks, until you see uh, neurons appearing. And of course, in vitro and more recently now, at least in our lab, also in vivo, uh, you can actually even follow this conversion process mm -hmm. by live imaging or, of course, by molecular techniques, single cell sequencing. Does that have any advantage over adding cells from outside that you, that you collected from outside? Yeah, it does. 
And of course, it also has disadvantages. The advantage is that you use the own cells and you do not need suppression of the immune system. That is, of course, one issue after transplantation, even into the brain. The disadvantage is maybe just one by time, transplantation of fetal cells into the brains, even of Parkinson patients, has started much earlier, let's say 20 years earlier. It's a bit exaggerating, but uh, roughly. And uh, henceforth, it's indeed much more developed clinically. And as we all know, with the advent of the induced pluripotent stem cells, now we also have great sources for transplantation. And for sure, this is further advanced. But clearly, if you can actually tweak the endogenous cells to turn into the neurons that have been lost, that overcomes a lot of complications. If a glial cell is being like reprogrammed into a neuron and there's like so many different types of neurons, how do you get the correct type of neuron that you're aiming for? And we can start there. Yeah, we can start there because it's a big question. I mean, let me say it's a big challenge because in fact, I would say that is where the field is now. How do you do that? Of course, you multiplex, you choose several factors, so not only one proneural factor, that also in development, and let's emphasize and not forget that all what we are using for reprogramming is what we know from development. So the proneural factors generate neurons in many brain regions, and accordingly, as we spoke, you know, if we reprogram a spinal cord astrocyte, it generates a different neuron, namely something similar to a V2 interneuron. While if we reprogram a cortex neuron with the same single factor, we get a glutamatergic neuron. Now, how do we further improve this and then make um, glutamatergic neurons of different layer identity or different subtypes by adding further transcription factors that we know again from development that are important for the generation of the upper layer neurons or the deep layer neurons and so forth. And people have made uh, great strides in that it was a bit damaged by recent year publications that claimed to have a miraculous generation of the right type of neuron by using a single factor, actually PTB knockdown or blocking. You know, you get retina neurons in the retina, you get dopaminergic neurons um, in the right brain region. Yeah, I had and, so many questions about that, that work. How is that? Like, how, how Yeah, is so I'm just uh, getting to that. And in fact, this largely turned out to be an artifact of using a viral vector that is by no means CLIA-specific. In fact, these AAVs, adeno-associated viruses, that are used in these papers, they infect preferentially even neurons. But then people thought to use a genetic trick, namely to flex the genome in the viral vector and then use a Cree driven by a glial promoter to activate the flexed virus. So that was basically a genetic trick. 
hoping to make this clear specific. Now, what has been clearly shown is that if your promoter region driving the GRI is also on a viral vector, there is cis regulation that actually causes simply activation of the or unflexing of the genes in the neurons. Now, we again, we, we also used AAVs because they have a great advantage, namely they are so much less immunogenic. However, when we did this, we actually labeled endogenous neurons as well in order to make sure that we don't just get endogenous neurons lighting mm -hmm. up with GFP and thinking they are reprogrammed. So we just recently wrote an entire review that has been published in Neuron, putting things together and also highlighting certain gold standards that should be looked at when you do in vivo reprogramming. And in vitro probably as well, but in vivo it's more critical for more susceptible to artifacts, so to say. When you are reprogramming, then does it reprogram into like a generic neuron? Like if you're reprogramming a certain region of the brain and the local circuitry can take from there? Like if you take that same neuron and you reprogram it in a dish versus in the brain, does it behave differently? And then I might follow up with something after that. Yeah, I, I, I start with the first half of the question because that's indeed something to which we, one to which we have an answer. And we answered it by in vitro reprogramming. So do the neurons first generate a panneuronal identity? I mean, do the astrocytes or glial cells first convert into like a panneuron and then specify into GABAergic or glutamatergic neuron? We looked at that published some while ago by comparing the reprogramming in GABAergic neurons and glutamatergic neurons from the identical starter cells, so to say, in vitro. And what we found was that already four hours after inducing the reprogramming factor, in fact, the transcriptional programs are different and, and we never find a common transcriptional program that would, so to say, be the panneuronal identity. And then later they would diverge, but rather, so to say, there's different ways to come to Rome and there's different ways to come to a neuron. And we don't see much of a panneuronal identity induced first. Now, as I mentioned, these were in vitro experiments. And the second half of your question was about if, if neurons would differ in vivo and in vitro. Now, again, we need much more research on that. But and let me just emphasize that indeed the neuronal subtypes, you can actually only read out in vivo because what is different about a neuronal subtype where it projects to from which region it gets input, uh, of course, also the transmitter identity, this you can read out in vitro, but when it comes to layer-specific subtypes or things like this, you really need to go in vivo. So therefore, your question is partially a little bit difficult to answer because we can't, for all the fine-tuned neuronal subtypes, compare in vitro and in vivo. So then how, how close does that regenerated circuitry in vivo then need to be to the mm -hmm. original state of the network for repair? Like how much damage can you have and how much 
can the endogenous host brain kind of take over and overlay information on those new neurons? Yes, that's a super fascinating question. And we are just gearing up to actually address uh, parts of it because my answer would be, this is not known. So as what we know and as is well known that Parkinson's patients, for example, they show up in the clinic when already 70% uh, or 60% of the dopaminergic neurons in the ventral midbrain have been lost, meaning that obviously uh, there was compensation that was sufficient to, to still keep the system going for loss of 60% neurons, or let's just make it half. Now, is this the same in each brain region? Uh, does it differ in different brain region? And how is it when you lose, let's say, 50% of the neurons of a circuit immediately, all at once, like in stroke, or versus you lose it, you lose them slowly, and the circuitry may have the chance to adapt. All these questions are not answered at a conceptual and even for different brain regions level. And this is one of the many basic questions that are still open even for the transplantation. Even so, transplantation has been done a lot and has, has been successful in the clinic and is resumed in the clinic. Now, this may have to do that it was very much focused because it was such a breakthrough on Parkinson patients. As you know, the cells are even transplanted in an ectopic site, the striatum, not the region where they have been lost. So all these circuitry questions, they are behind for at least 30 years. But now, of course, with so many tools to make new neurons, either to transplant them or to reprogram them, at least we also look much more into the circuitry. And uh, yeah, also a few years back, we had a big paper on for the first time looking how much transplantation of fetal cortex neurons into a very precise neuronal ablation model of cortex neurons from the upper layers. How well could these transplanted neurons actually replace function, I mean, and by this, I mean uh, calcium imaging of visual cortex neurons that we did together with uh, Mark Hübener and Tobias Bonhoeffer, but also how adequate is actually the brain-wide input connectome, because maybe some aberrant input you would only see under certain behavioral circumstances that may not have even been probed in animal experiments, let's say. But in this, as I always call it, call it like a gold standard study, because this neuronal ablation model is certainly not something that occurs in the clinic, but uh, in this proof of principle experiment, we could show that indeed the brain-wide connectome can be absolutely adequate. And we did not find any evidence for yeah, aberrant connectivity. So this shows you how, how much we still need to learn about the connectivity, also in different lesion contexts, about how many neurons we need to replace in order to replace function. 
And what works well for Parkinson's disease patients, because this is such a dopaminergic phenotype, may be completely different than for other brain regions where you have a more complicated circuitry maybe, or you require several subtypes, glutamatergic neurons, GABAergic neurons from different layers for repair. So yeah, I would say lots of research needed, exciting work to be done. Yeah, that was a great paper showing, like you said, that that proof of concept that you can integrate those those new neurons. And it seems like fetal cells are superior to perhaps cultured cells, because it seems like, you know, they're, they're young um, and more plastic. Yeah. So in this study, we actually compared cultured cells and fetal cells, which we directly dissociated. We did not find any big difference. Um, only quantitative differences. So like also the brain-wide input connectome was, was as adequate. We found some differences maybe in the output, but as I said, quantitative. Nevertheless, I would 100% agree with you that especially uh, from IPS differentiation, we are not yet for all cell types or neuronal subtypes as good as the fetal cells from the, you know, proper developmental brain region actually are. And here I would argue, and many labs are doing this now, of course, single cell sequencing and all the readouts that we have now help us to model in vitro and improve the differentiation system so we can get more adequate neurons. So certainly I agree with your point. Even so, in this study, we did not see a massive difference between in vitro and acutely dissociated cells. Along the lines of repair in young cells and, and things like that, it seems to work best in either young or injured tissue. Mm-hmm. So is, it, is that a, a coincidence or is there actually some overlap in the profiles of these cells, meaning that like young cells, like we were saying, are more plastic and are kind of more transcriptionally active? with these like critical periods and maybe injured cells, injury reopens these critical periods or is there more of a a difference that happens to have a similar outcome? No, so absolutely after brain injury, cells de-differentiate, mostly glial cells. And I would say mostly astrocytes, maybe because they are like the closest relatives to the radial glial cells that have been stem cells. And uh, this basically opens a window of opportunity, if you want, to then reprogram these cells and turn them into neurons. Absolutely. And, and there's many studies about that. Now, again, also single cell sequencing studies, but before population studies where it was shown that Uh, developmental genes are upregulated like PAC6, like others, but they don't reach the levels of normal stem cells, which is one reason why they just, they do not generate naturally or endogenously new neurons. The other reason is that indeed it takes firmly specified neuronal progenitors to be able to enact 
neurogenesis in this gliogenic adult brain environment. So the best example I always use is when you actually transplant adult neural stem cells, uh, as was the big hope after they had been discovered, into whatever brain region after injury, they largely turn into glial cells. Uh, because this is such a gliogenic environment. So this shows us that the niche of these adult neural stem cells and the adult neurogenic zones are very important. Conversely, the fetal cells, they are, and therefore fetal radial glia, they are very firmly determined. They have one job at that time, and this is make neuron X and indeed, also transcriptionally, now we understand much better because these radial glia cells, then they have blastingly high levels of neurogenic factors. The adult neural stem cells, they have primed RNA expression at low levels, but not yet the protein. So all this is a long-winded answer to your question that indeed endogenous glial cells mostly they de-differentiate to some extent but they are in a very difficult environment in terms of making neurons so i sorry Vasi. <laughs> could i ask the, uh, yes, just a quick follow-up question uh, about about that study and just kind of relevant to some of my work so in the study where you transplanted um, into the visual cortex and you did a very specific ablation, does all this mean that there's kind of a critical window, so to speak, for transplantation when there is still kind of an active injury? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, very good point. And, and really other labs have contributed much more on probing when the best window is for transplantation. For example, Afsane Gayal's uh, lab has shown that about a week after ablation of certain cells is, is one of the best times, which is, by the way, why we choose one week and blame shame on us, but we've never modulated. <laughs> We were busy with the one-week time point. Uh, We never did shorter or longer. But absolutely, uh, even for transplantation and surely also for conversion of cells where, you know, you may have to hit the plasticity of the glial cells. But also if you bring in new neurons and you want to have the plasticity of the network for them to integrate well, the timing is, is crucial. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, j- just a quick follow up as well. Like, I'm just curious. Do you th- are there any strategies that you employ that would make the older non-injured brain more susceptible to this kind of reprogramming? Yeah, I mean, um, we bounce around a lot of ideas in the lab that that are aimed at that. For example, of course increasing astrocyte plasticity, as we still think the astrocytes are really a good cell type for reprogramming. And so we do lots of single cell studies trying to understand which could be plastic astrocytes. And and I had a recent paper showing that in specific brain regions, indeed, you have particularly plastic astrocytes that even proliferate in the adult. And we think we have discovered something like adult astrogliogenesis, where you can actually also have ongoing astrocytes. So absolutely, there's uh, not. This is our work, as I'm 
speaking here, but there's lots of efforts to try and understand what are, so to say, uh, good conditions for initiating repair. And that, of course, let's get back to the neural circuitry, also is the huge field of research that actually fosters circuitry plasticity also for regaining function. And this is, of course, something that is already uh, done in the clinic with rehabilitation. And there is fantastic work that tries to combine now molecular treatments with this rehabilitation, for example, after spinal cord injury. So to open the plasticity or help further increase the plasticity of the circuitry and 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 train it for function so yes lots of lots of angles by which one could try to make the system more plastic yeah okay well just since you kind of even touched upon this i what we were wondering is generally what is your take on the current debate going on within the scientific community with regards to adult neurogenesis some people seem to believe like some people believe that it doesn't occur some people do think that it does occur kind of where do you find yourself in this debate yeah in in, in humans that 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 is yeah yeah, yeah, in humans of course yeah (laughs) yes so well maybe one problem of our specific time right now is what you just called belief some people believe this and some people believe that as scientists of course we normally look at data And um, my view is data-driven. And I would say that there is many data supporting adult neurogenesis in the human dentate gyrus. There is the C14 approach, uh, so to say, from Jonas Friesen's lab. There is earlier studies from from terminally ill patients from Rusty Gage's lab that actually even opened that up by using EDU or BRDU labeling. And there is tons of stainings and, and other evidence. So I would say the most solid evidence is always when several techniques come together. And I would say that is the case for adult dentagyrus neurogenesis in humans. And the fact that one lab didn't find it, one has to take, of course, serious and try to think about it. And as you know, there is, in fact, answers in several journals published. So I would say the evidence is quite clear. Several techniques have shown that there is adult neurogenesis in the dentagyrus. There's also technical explanations why maybe sometimes one sees double cortine and sometimes not. But clearly, what is missing also, and I think we should, rather than becoming too, you know, I don't know, ideological, we are scientists. So let's look into the future. And what we need, of course, is we need in vivo imaging techniques also for humans to to look at neurogenesis so that's what is needed and 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 we need any better means to to monitor neurogenesis i mean you know if we can come up with a new technique the force technique then to to find further evidence in humans that that is also great 
but yeah, I think what is really needed is is live imaging tools to look at neurogenesis in a non-invasive way, obviously. Yeah. Why do you think that adult in humans, adult neurogenesis does stop in some regions, but doesn't in others? Like mm. what functional or developmental reason function might that have? Yeah. I mean, that is a question that applies to the entire let's say, mammalian uh, species that have been looked at so far. So adult neurogenesis is very region-specific. And while some regions, in some regions, neurogenesis seems to have been found in all species looked at so far, this is a rather limited number, I would say. So there's more species to look at. In other regions, there is diversity, like striatal neurogenesis. There was some report for humans. There was some report for rabbits. Not the case in, in mice and rats, as far as we know. And other reports on cerebellar neurogenesis, maybe a bit weaker, hypothalamic neurogenesis. So I would say we need to look in a comparative manner in more species to try and understand what this could mean. Now, this is the, so to say, output function. The input function, how does it come, how is it brought about, is a fascinating question that is also fascinating us. Namely, when and how is it decided that radial glia cells stop neurogenesis and, you know, some continue for cleogenesis, others retire as ependymal cell. And in just the adjacent brain region, they become some stem cells that persist into postnatal life or adulthood. And uh, again, I would say this is not known and this will be the nuts of bolts and, and finding out how is it regulated but then it's important to understand why then does it continue in some region? So why is this a regulated trait? So when it comes to cell reprogramming treatment in, in humans, it kind of seems to be kind of like the, the next frontier. So what kind of blockades do we need to overcome for that to be a clinically validated treatment option? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we need to overcome one hurdle that you already touched upon, namely, we need to learn how to make the right subtypes of neurons. Even for dopaminergic neurons, this is not readily achieved. As we know, there is no convincing in vivo reprogramming yet for dopaminergic neurons after this, some of the others have been, so to say, cancelled out a little bit. So this is the prime hurdle that is absolutely still in preclinical rearm, obviously, but at the same time can be started with human cells in vitro. And for example, also what we are doing for the type of neurons we want to generate. Then I would think that for ideally um, for reprogramming, what we then want to do is we want to go systemic. So non-invasive, I should say. Ideally, we, the, another advantage you asked before about advantages of reprogramming, uh, one could be that you don't have to inject in the brain. It's done like this now with viral vectors, but there is viral vectors that you can apply systemically. 
And now there is all the new technologies, maybe RNA, maybe whatever, particles, nano or not, uh, one could apply it systemically and that are targeted to specific cells in the brain and would then reprogram these. So I think these are some of the main things that need to be achieved before going there. But of course, um, we also need, like in transplantation, when you differentiate the iPS cells into, let's say, dopaminergic neurons, right? We and many other labs are already working on in vitro turning glial cells or whichever cells you want to convert into the right neurons. So we need the protocols for reprogramming human cells into the right neuronal subtype. Right. You also need to get through the, bl the blood brain barrier, I guess, right? For the more, a more systemic approach. With yeah, but there's um, a whole slew of AAV capsids that actually do that. Uh, the point is then again, you know, one needs to direct them specifically to glial cells or, in fact, for medical purposes, for therapeutic purposes, it may not even be too bad if some may also go to neurons because it could help them survive. So, uh, but yes, there is AAVs that go via the blood-brain barrier. And then, of course, a certain injuries like stroke we touched upon before uh, where the bvb is open anyway right so we're always in the dark ages uh relative to the future when it comes to the complexities of cell signaling and reprogramming what do you think the future would look like in terms of getting these answers in a more more like high throughput way without having to test just one transcription at a time and is epigenomic uh, reprogramming a solution to this? Definitely CRISPR multiplexing is a solution to that. So CRISPR screens, as they are done as we speak in many labs or for reprogramming, of course, offer really a faster tool to understand which factors can reprogram into which cells and so forth. And CRISPR, of course, also allows uh, multiplexing epigenome uh, modifications. And at the end of the day, I guess the real future is then also to bring this together, to use different CRISPR derivatives, I should say, for maybe certain epigenome modifications and multiplexing transcription factor activation at the same time. You know, it was it wasn't that long ago, like 200 years ago, that electricity was first shown to be able to be controlled by us humans with Faraday's famous Solenoid experiment, where he put a magnet simply just through a coil of wire and showed that you could induce current. And from such a simple experiment, I often wonder how the pioneers of that time, like Faraday, Tesla, and Volta, would think of the world that has become from such a thing. We went from solenoid to the smartphone. So in terms of stem cell biology, what do you think is our equivalent of a solenoid and what would be the smartphone for the future? Or something more simple like a calculator because smartphone that, you know, who could have predicted that? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I definitely think that non-invasive techniques to reprogram maybe even several cells in the brain would be the calculator or smartphone. And uh, I do think also that multiplexing using CRISPR will be maybe a modem in this smartphone. So I I would say I'm not sure to which to analogize the present tools of reprogramming, but let's say they opened up a field. So maybe it's the solenoid state or the first experiment, because as you know, not too long time ago, we were thinking cell identities are fixed and all we could do to these cells would basically kill them right? Mm -hmm. You try to turn a a, a neuron into something else, it dies, or a a glial cell into something else, it dies. Now, I think this is a real revolution that now we know in principle, we can turn any cell into any cell. It's just maybe in your analogy, the tools are still a little medieval maybe uh, you know we take huge amount of transcription factor we pump the cell we so leave it on for all the time <laughs> we leave it on for all the time you won't believe but so far no evidence uh, nobody uh, has yet shown in in vivo reprogramming that you can actually turn the reprogramming factor off again clearly a prerequisite. And of course, we and truly others are working on that. But just to say, we are still really in a little bit the clumsy states of of reprogramming. And I think that, yeah, something like non-invasive, cool vector tools, maybe RNA-based, targeted to specific cell types, maybe even several at the same time, that could be like a smartphone. I would be very excited to see this smartphone still. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, we, we need to get on it and extend our lives to another 3,000 years and see what happens. Yeah. Oh, we just need to move faster. <laughs> <laughs> True, too. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to touch up on one of the things that you just mentioned about how it might be, it, like, it could be beneficial to turn off the transcription factors. Can you talk a little bit about, like, why that would be, why you think that would be necessary and maybe one of the issues that might come from not being able to do it and maybe how it could be done in the future? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the definition of reprogramming is, of course, that you turn off your factor, you know, and the cell fate is stable. So mm-hmm. if you if you are a purist, you would say then in this sense, a stable reprogramming has not yet been shown in vivo because so far the factors were always kept. So indeed, it's a conceptual and basic science problem. But like you say, it's also a problem for probably the neurons induced because normally mature neurons don't express proneural factors and things like this. Now, interestingly, there's evidence that probably at the protein levels, these factors are anyhow downregulated. And so therefore, maybe clinically and and for the sake of the young neurons, it may not be an as big problem, but in terms of research standards, 
I mean, there is an urgent need to do that and to nail that and to show that properly that you can turn these factors off, fate is stable, and the neurons don't go into a um, limbo state, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that we have to figure out is what are these like critical nodes in all of this process that we need to be able to control? And then... absolutely where the system can can take over absolutely i mean uh, as humans i always say you know we're just we're, we're kind of stupid <laughs> like i look at these cells and i'm like they know what they're doing and i have no idea you know there with this you know just tons of diff different you know signaling pathways and proteins all just kind of slurried around uh we you know we have to figure that out absolutely couldn't agree more yeah <laughs> Is there, is there any way to predict how a given starter cell, so astrocyte or like maybe a subtype of an astrocyte, uh, will respond to reprogramming uh, transcription factors? Like yeah, so in that, advance? Yeah. yeah, in advance, exactly. That goes back to what you, Joanna, just mentioned, namely, if we understand the critical nodes of, let's say, the starting cell identity and the starting cell yeah, epigenome and proteome, the nodes that are critical to direct the outcome of reprogramming, then we should be able to, to predict that. Yeah, so that requires lots of uh, systems analysis and clever systems approaches mm -hmm. and, and will be, of course, very important because eventually, and this is an excellent point that you touch on, because if we go into human patients, right, we, we cannot probe each single cell in the brain or let's also leave the brain and, and, and make the point that this reprogramming approach, I mean, it's equally cool for cardiomyocytes, turning fibroblasts into cardiomyocytes, for lung epithelial cells, turning fibroblasts into lung epithelial cells. And so, especially when we move to humans, um, we will not be able to probe any of these cell types in vivo. And as we know, in vivo, they differ from in vitro. So it would be very important to predict exactly, as you say, from maybe gene expression studies that one could get from post-mortem tissue or small biopsies to predict how the reaction would be. So super point, unfortunately, still early days. Still, still medieval times for, <laughs> for, for, for reprogramming. Yeah. But you've gotten us very far, Magdalena. Thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Time. Okay, cool. That was fun. Our brain is the one thing that cannot be entirely replaced, but it can be repaired with a little bit of ingenuity. We learned that our brains seem to have the ability to generate a small population of new neurons, which are useful in our daily lives but they aren't enough to repair injury or disease. For that, we need to apply what we know from neural development to recreate lost neurons and circuits. We'll learn more about how scientists are working on such therapies in our next episode, as well as how, in the meantime, we can boost our neurogenesis through exercise and enriching our environment. Your hosts for this episode were Vasilisa and Joanna. Thanks for joining us today. Visit our website at neuronair.org for more resources about today's episode and to learn more about our guests. You can follow us on social media at NeuronAirCast, where you can leave comments on today's episode. To get in touch with us directly, 
email us at neuronairpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and review us. See you next time.